Eric Bischoff here again, telling you about our friends over at SaveWithConrad.com. Now, Conrad's always talking about how they are helping homeowners save money, but did you know that Conrad and his team can also help you become a homeowner? They make the home buying process more enjoyable than, I don't know, making out with Stephanie and Linda. Ouch! But don't take my word for it. I'm Willie Proctor, and I'm from Martinsburg, West Virginia. I came with uh, Save with Conrad to buy my first home. Is that once I, you know, listened to the podcast, I, I was I heard other testimonials and uh, how easy it was. So and that was the whole process for me here was wanting for convenience. Oh, it was a it was a pleasure. I mean, it was like working with family. It really was like, you know, being from West Virginia. You know, it's it's all about family here, and and that's what it was like working with Conrad's team. You know, I worked with Larry, uh, Holly, and Francis. And they were just, it was just like, I thought I was talking to my aunt or, you know, talking to my dad, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Yeah, this is actually the house I grew up in. So that was kind of the whole thing. And my mom was moving to South Carolina, you know, she was, and she got stressed out about what to do with the house, how she was going to sell it, uh, get rid of everything. And I thought, you know what, I didn't want to see the house go. But at the same time, I wanted to make the process easy for me and easy for my mom. And working with Larry and the team, uh, they made it easy for both of us. Uh, hi, this is Willie Proctor, and I just bought my first house with SaveWithConrad.com. And unlike the dirt sheets, we're not making this up. Check out all the five-star reviews. Go to SaveWithConrad.com and do it today. You'll be grateful you did. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Um, this all starts as crazy as it sounds, at least it seems like, in June of 03, The Observer would write, Foley called the WWE up recently and wanted to come back, although not to wrestle, at least for a short run. A lot of that is to get some visibility at the time for his novel, Tatum Brown, which is coming out combined with him being gone for so long, he'd be a fresh character. No decision was made as of June 1st, but everyone, including me, presumes he'll be the referee for Hell in a Cell, and it'll be announced on June 9th. Foley had been doing voiceovers for TNN, as you could hear him constantly if you watch the network. Boy, the timing of that, uh, given a conversation we just had. Before right we before we went before. on the air, yeah. I was talking about my, uh, my voice work for TNN. So in some ways, I was on the WWE show more when I was absent than I was when I was there, because I was on four or five different times uh, a show doing yeah. the voiceovers. And it was never acknowledged that it was me. Uh, but so I still had my, I still had my, you know, finger on the pulse. Um, I had left under less than ideal circumstances, as a lot of us do. And that was uh, October of, uh, October 2001, I had left under less than ideal circumstances involving, of all things, a children's book. This is uh, the Halloween hijinks. And I, I had gone on uh, to talk about uh, Foley is Good. And as soon as I, I uh, <clears throat> got on the Today, the Today Show, it's amazing how important the New York Times is in the bigger scheme of things and how much of the world the artistic world revolves around it because uh, even with Have a Nice Day, having done so well and hit number one, I've got this follow-up and I've got a, um, uh, 
promote, not a promoter, a publicist. Yeah. Who's now working with me on my second book? We, you know, we've got a good friendship. But she's saying I can't get I can't get these venues. I can't get people. I can't get this bird. I can't get this. Um, I said, what about the Today Show? It got back says they don't do wrestlers. That's their they don't do wrestlers. And then I get a call about the New York Times. And uh, Jennifer Souter was her, now her name is Jennifer Robinson, still in touch after all these years with my old publicist. She goes, I've got some great news. I go, what is it? She goes, the New York Times is doing an article on you. I said, well, that is good. She reprimands me. She goes, no, that's not good. That's great. That's great as, as, as in it's the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. So I got a little nervous at first that they were coming out there to bury me, you know, right. New York Times. So I remember calling Barry Blaustein, director of Beyond the Mat, and told him the deal. And he goes, Mick, he said, uh, wrestler writes book, is a good, writes novel, is a good story. Wrestler writes novel and it stinks is not a good story. They're not coming to your house to write that story. And that lifted, that made sense, right? Yeah. So the woman comes out, she does a wonderful job. Uh, they release something, I think it's on the front page of the art section. And immediately all these outlets that said no are saying not just yes, yeah. but when yes can you? tomorrow. Yeah, when can you? People magazines out at the house that I get asked and I said, can you, uh, Jennifer says, can you be on the Today Show tomorrow? And I said, I thought they didn't do wrestlers. She goes, they're doing you. So can I tell you, can I walk you through my yes. Today Show experience, yes. right? Please. She says, Katie Couric is going to be doing the interview. I, oh, I like Katie. She goes, well, Katie can be tough. I said, well, yeah, she's tough, but she's fair. And that yeah. was the only thing I was concerned with was, uh, you know, people being fair. Yeah. So I go out, it's a five minute segment. And um, the first couple questions are a little tough about the content of the show. And then it, then it lightens up a little bit. She says, I also understand you've written a children's book. And I said, well, yes, I have. And I believe both my book and yours were on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. And then I feel, I'll never forget the feeling of Katie Couric's hand on my knee. And she says, may I say, it was a pleasure to be on that list with you, right? And so we finish our thing. And as I'm walking through, they got the big soundproof doors, right? So I open up the door. And as that door is slowly closing, and it's got about this much before closing, so I can actually hear what's going on. I hear her go, he was cute. And not, I didn't take that to mean like, oh, he was hot cute, like a cutie patootie was the word going around. Like, I just think she or she had an image in her mind of what a wrestler was going to be. Yeah. And so the next day I get a call from Jennifer and she said, guess who wants you? I said, the Today Show. I said, who? She said, the Today Show. I said, but I was just on the Today Show. And she said, as soon as they heard that you had another children's book coming out, this would be Halloween hijinks, they booked you for Halloween day. So I'd go the real mature route. I said, does that mean Katie likes me? <laughs> oh my said, gosh, that's And so she great. said, it means someone likes you because they just booked you five months in advance. So now I start having friction with the company. Um, the friction is that I mentioned in the New York Times article that I would like to write a novel. So Judith Regan of Regan Books, who WWE had their deal with and have just ended their deal, but she's the one I did my first two, you know, the, the first two memoirs with, and I had a good relationship with Judith. Uh, she makes me an offer sight unseen on a book I haven't even written. 
and I tell her I I would feel better about actually writing it before we. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that makes me a mark. You know, no. they're not. I but I, you, yeah. yeah, I wasn't sure I could do it, and I wanted to make sure it was good. And as soon as WWE gets wind of the fact that uh, I've been offered, I have an offer. That's when Mr. McMahon, which could be his Achilles heel, the control factor, decides he does not want that novel outside of WWE. So you can do another book, but it has to be with his partner. That's what he said. Yeah. And this is where, if there's a great, there's a great scene, there's a lot of great scenes in the Get Back documentary, The Beatles. It's really extensive. While I was watching it, I watched all three episodes. There's about two hours in or two hours to each episode. I watched all six in a row. And at a certain point, like, man, there's some busy work going on here. I don't know if we need all this. But then when you see it as a as a, a total thing, you can understand you get to see the nuts and the bolts and everything that works. And there's this scene that could have saved the Beatles where George Harrison says to John, just kind of offhandedly, he says, you know, I only get one or two songs, an album. I'm not going to do a George Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> he, he said, I've got all these songs. I, I'd like to do my own thing. Do you think that would be okay? And John says, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't. And Paul later was asked about it. He said, you know, recently, could that have saved the Beatles? He said, yeah, I think it could have. If everybody would have been allowed to go out and do their own thing, you could have kept that group. I think I'm considering me and Vince to be the Beatles. Right. And I was the guy that wanted to do my outside project. And I just, as stupid as it sounds, I just didn't want the W, I didn't want the logo logo on it. On it, and I remember talking to Jay. I don't mean to cut you off, but was that a point of pride about I want to be able to prove yeah. I can do this on my yeah. own? Yeah, it's there's hey, look, you know, you go outside, you go outside the auspices of WWE, out of the friendly confines, but it can also, can also be a little bit constricting. Yeah, and I just wanted to do my own thing and have it out there. You can ask Barry Bloom about this sometime, where he Jr. goes, well, hell, he goes. You know, um, I said, Chair, what happens if you guys don't like the novel I wrote? He said, I don't see uh, why uh, we wouldn't like it. It's not like there's anything about anal sex in there. I went, actually, like it, I went, the book went some dark places. Yeah. And so I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm, it's like battering heads with WWE. At the same time, I've got this appointment, uh, this thing coming up with uh, uh, the Today Show. And for the first time ever, a talent asked that WWE be banned from the studio. Wow. So I just, I, I heard, I think Gary was the, uh, I can't remember his last name, he was the head of uh, PR at that time. And I called up and he told me they were going to have a team there. I said, no, absolutely not. This is something I was asked to do because they liked me. My children are going to be there. My wife's going to be there. I don't want you guys. I may have dropped an F-bomb on them, uh, but I probably just said messing it up. And then I called uh, WWE. I called the Today Show producer, said I didn't want WWE uh, in the building. And I had them banned from the building. Wow. So the next, so we had a great, great time, right? It's a great time. It's a tough time in America because it's post 9 11. Yeah. So we've got to dress out. We got, there's no green rooms open. You have to dress out in the hallway. NBC Studios had had something mailed to them, powder, whether it was legit or not, I don't know. But it was a scary time in America. And here I've got this moment to rejoice 
be with my family. Um, we meet Soledad O'Brien, who tells us she grew up in the house next door to the one we just moved into. Oh, wow. And thus begins a 20-year friendship with Soledad O'Brien. I turn from my conversation with Soledad, and I don't see little Mickey, who's not quite a year old. He's about 10 months old. I said, where's Mickey? And my wife says, Katie has him. And I look out, and Katie's holding my son, who's dressed like a pumpkin, to close the show. And I thought at that time, this is one of the great moments of my life. Of you know, course. One of the things we get to do is decide our own WrestleMania moments. This is at a time when I hadn't quite come to terms with the legacy of the Hell in a Cell uh, and accepted that it was a, you know, an, an incredible moment, yeah. not just in wrestling, but not just in my life, but in wrestling as well. And at that point, I was like, hey, you know, if you want to consider that moment where I was knocked unconscious and ended up with a tooth in my nose and scared my family to death, you want to consider that a great moment in my life? That's not for you to decide, right? Like, you can consider that a great moment. And now I do. But I was like, I'm going to go with Katie holding my child to end the Today Show. On national TV. So, so I'm just telling you, the friction, the it wasn't good. I went to JR. We had a meeting at Nassau Coliseum. So wait, does he call the meeting because you banned him from, how does that go? I can't remember if we spoke on the phone or if we had the meeting at Nassau Coliseum where I wasn't even booked on the show. I'd come back in as their uh, uh, commissioner for yeah. a far less successful second run. It only lasted four or five weeks um, because I, I clearly wasn't happy there. And JR said, uh, her, Heard about the Today Show. <laughs> I said, yeah. Has anyone ever done that before? I said, can't say that they have. And then he said, Mick, Vince and I feel like we are at a part in this relationship where if we force you to stay, uh, the relationship will be uh, har harmed, for, you know, uh, inexorably. Yeah, I'm probably not saying that correctly. You get the idea. It would be without. It's going to go sour. Yeah, yeah it's going to go sour. But if we were to let you go now, because I'd asked to be let out of my contract uh, a year early, um, we let you go now, we think we're in a position where we can work together again. And does that sound right? I said, yeah, I think it does. He said, well, consider this your release. I go walking away. There's a ramp that goes up to the parking lot at uh, Nassau Coliseum. The last person I see is Stacy Keebler. And I'd always had a good relationship with Stacy. And I walked past, I said goodbye. She goes, are you leaving? And I said, yeah, and I gave her a hug. And I walk about another 10 yards and I come back and I said, in this business, just because something usually is a certain way doesn't mean it needs to be that way. And she looks at me and says, are you talking about my boobs? And oh. I said, actually, I am talking about your boobs. And she said, don't worry, I'm not getting a boob job. And I went, Okay, and that's exactly what I wanted to talk to her about because I thought there might be pressure on her. Had you go. heard that there would be no, pressure? No, I had not heard you that. You just knew, though. I could just see that this one of these things is not like the other, and I think that's good, you know. And it makes her different. I mean, everything makes different. And we think we've learned that lesson with yes. the women now that not everybody goes for the, the same, same look. There's some widely divergent styles, you know, on the women's end, and that's great for the business. But that was the last thing I said for a year and a half. And then I did call them up. Uh, Any conversation with Vince after that? I don't believe so. I know you've had an yeah. on-again, off-again yeah. relationship. But despite that, would there still be birthday and Christmas messages? <sighs> no more no more Vince and Linda singing uh, happy birthday together on my uh, 
on my recorder or my recording machine um, like it was in 2000. Never hit that height again. I can't tell you for a fact that we didn't have any communication. It wasn't and warm. It was, yeah, it wasn't great. And But in the meantime, I was still in touch with Sue Aitchison. She knew I lived on Long Island and I did things, you know, for free for the company that, you know, they're involved in a lot of great organizations. Yeah. So it wasn't like I was completely shut out, but I hadn't been on TV in any way, shape or form, uh, except when I'd be featured like or, or be one of those guys who was losing to one of the current stars in a video package. And yeah. I always thought that was a great honor to be thought of highly enough to be in somebody's package. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That, I'm not sure that came out the way I wanted it. I know though. what yeah, you mean. The time. <laughs> so that's setting the stage for the phone call I give uh, Vince uh, because I just thought I could come in and uh, add something to the Hell in a Cell with Triple H and Kevin Nash. And I remember it, it was a, the Raw was held in Miami and I was scared, right? Like, I thought I was gone for good. I remember like looking at the clock, uh, well not at my watch, cause I ne I've never had a watch, but looking at the clock, 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late, hour late, all right, I'd better go. Um, I kind of uh, hung outside the door longer, you know, longer than I would have, and I opened up the door and the first person I saw was Stacy Keepler. And she came over running into my arms cause she was with Test at the time. And she knew that bothered test when she jumped into my arms in a fun way. Um, and from there, it was like, I'd just been there yesterday. So we do this angle. Uh, you want to allude to the angle? Yeah, you know? so okay. uh, before we get going, I just want to find out, were you thinking you were going to actually get back in the ring? Did you? So none of that was planned. It was no, just, no, okay. none of that was planned. Uh, I was still uh, three bills and change at that time but i thought i could add something to the the hell in a cell the show yeah I like it so today we're talking about wrestlemania 13 and you said at the top of the show hey wrestlemania back then is not what it is now when do you remember that changing i mean 12 and 13 for me it changed in 98 with mike tyson really you know i remember being in a legends round table type of thing and i was roundly criticized by the table i had because i said that the tyson appearance was the biggest celebrity appearance because it took wrestlemania to that next level and yeah. the guys were like booing me as for insinuating that wrestlemania wasn't always huge but you check the buy rates i think 97 that first one i was in was way down. Way down. Like way it down. was like a, a percentage point or two above what a normal pay-per-view would have. It was almost in in your house territory. I don't want to, you know, disparage mania by saying it was all the way in your house, but it was approaching in your house numbers. Uh, and I think it changed when uh, everything just fell into place. You had a major, you know, major um, crossover celebrity in Tyson, who was also a huge wrestling fan growing up to the point where when I first met Mike, he was hitting me with trivia that I couldn't remember about my own career. Wow. He was talking about, you know, man, go and play with the Rats. And, uh, and I couldn't even remember when I played with the Rats. And I had, oh, that's right. That was my vignette when I was Mankind and I was in the dungeon and it was uh, Corny's, you know, <laughs> Corny's pet rat that I named George. Uh, so you had Tyson, who was a huge wrestling fan, with an angle that worked, with a character in Steve that was just 
firing on all cylinders. And you had the angle that got played everywhere yeah. when he shoved Mike and and he was made to look like, uh, you know, Steve was made to look like a genuine, and he was a genuine superstar, yeah. but he was made to look to the general public like a genuine superstar. Legitimately. That to yeah. me is when everything changed. Well, and they did that crazy public workout with all those folks, with Sean and 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 Tyson tying up Austin and showing him the belt. But there were, I don't know what the expectation was, but Bruce says it was a multiple. You know, so maybe they expected a few thousand, and it was several thousand. But to me, it feels like WrestleMania 2001. I think that's when they started doing access. They had the dome, so no longer were they running arena shows; they're yeah. running a dome. Oh, one feels like maybe the first time where this is bigger. And is that when it started becoming a week? I think so. Yeah, it started yeah. becoming a week, and that's where people made the pilgrimage. I, I, I'm sure there were people coming around from around the world. Sure, but prior to then, but uh, you know, when you go to WrestleCon, I would say fifty percent plus of the people you meet are from outside the country. Isn't that crazy? It's yeah, it's crazy, and it's really telling as to how big it is. Uh, I, I I did an appearance uh, on the night of the Hall of Fame, and with WWF's blessing, although they said next year we'd like to have it at the Hall of Fame, but it was a surprise for Terry Funk that Gabe Sapolsky uh, arranged. You know, Gabe was a big fan of mine, a big fan of Terry's, great creative mind. And so I did the surprise for Terry, and it was super cool. You know, but Terry wasn't expecting it. He was emotional. But most people are thinking they're not expecting a WWE guy to show up at a, you know, at a smaller show. Right. Um, but that, the reason I bring that up is because uh, there was probably 2001 or a few years later that it started becoming this pilgrimage, not just for fans, but for wrestling companies yes. around the world. And now you see the number of uh, guests at like a WrestleCon. It's in like the hundreds, like 120, 130. Some of them bigger names than others, but 130 people almost uh, largely being flown in yeah. by a promoter. Sometimes they take a loss. Sometimes they make money. But it's just this idea that it's become this a meeting spot for the entire world. Oh, the reason I brought the funk the funk uh, show is because I got on the mic and I said something positive about WWE and it got some booze and I was like, hey, hold on a second. Like you can choose to like and not like what you want, but I think we need to accept that that's the reason everyone's here. Yes. You know, without 100%. that and that doesn't mean you can't go and enjoy every show but WWE. But Support what you like. Yeah, yeah, but they're the reason we're gathered here today. Yes. Uh, that was uh, almost like a church. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, we're gathered here today. You've heard Mick talk about it for years. AG1, Mick and I absolutely love AG1. We start each and every day with a simple scoop. That's it. That's all we need. One single scoop and a cup of water. And, buddy, we're getting 75 different high-quality ingredients it's going to hook you up and give you all the key daily nutrients. And it's going to go ahead and support everything you need, your energy, your focus, your strength, your clarity. This is just a, a no brainer to me. Think of it as like your foundational nutrition product. You know, listen, we all get busy and we wind up. Well, I didn't want to do this for lunch, but I don't feel like I have an option or, well, I know I need to Dude, this is easy. Just one scoop every single day. You're making sure you're taking care of your most valuable asset. You. You cover all your bases. You're looking for better gut health, 
You want a boost in energy? You want to support that immune system? Maybe you hate taking pills or vitamins. Maybe you just want a supplement that tastes good. I drink mine every single morning. My wife does hers before she even does her coffee. It makes her feel unstoppable on her way to the gym. And I think it gives me more focus at work. I feel like I'm more productive and I don't have that crash in the afternoon. I feel like I'm more productive all day long. We started this back even before the pandemic started. My wife did, but when the pandemic started, man, she had me start doing it. We've done it every day since we are huge fans. I think you will be too. Even our daughters are into it. Now Morgan's actually taking some down to Tuscaloosa with her with every single serving, you're setting yourself up for success. I just can't recommend it enough. By the way, you don't have to take our word for this. Just go look up their reviews. These cats have thousands of five-star reviews. It's the real deal. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG one and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG one travel packs with your first purchase. Go right now to drink one.com slash Foley. That's drink one.com slash Foley. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Uh, yeah. so at SmackDown <laughs> on February 1st, the show opens with you and the radicals coming out. You're going to cut a promo about how they weren't old enough to make it in WCW and they deserve a chance. Uh, Hunter is going to announce I, get, I got my zingers in there. Oh, you did, I, man. I, I was, I was a hundred percent on board as a WWE guy. I think the, uh, original plan, it feels like it's set here where it's going to be a series of matches and if they win, they get jobs. So it's going to be an eight man tag with the radicals against Hunter and the rest of DX. And that's supposed to be the main event. We know that doesn't happen. Um, but boy, what a crazy time this is because right after this, uh, and, and it's hard to just even put this into context, all that Vince is doing with the WWF and, and we know the next year they're actually going to go public, but here on February 3rd. He announces the XFL and, uh, you wrote in your book, Vince called me on my cellular phone on February 6th. I had my kids in the car and wasn't in any mood for a verbal confrontation. So I never mentioned 2020. What do you think we should do about the pay-per-view? Vince said, I consider my relationship with Vince to be a good one and at times to be a close one, but he doesn't make a habit of consulting with me about (laughs) pay-per-view ideas over the phone. I generally give the world wrestling federation some good ideas and they give me a great deal of creative freedom concerning interviews and angles, but this particular call was a little out of the norm. Fortunately, I had been giving my potential retirement match a great deal of thought and had an idea on tap. I'd regretted not retiring after the Madison square garden show and feared hanging around much longer. By the time the phone call was done, we had booked our no way out main event. It was cactus Jack and triple H and a hell in a cell match with the loser being forced to retire. I had intended to go out at, at the WrestleMania with a nice send off, but I actually like this idea better wrestling my kind of match in a pay-per-view main event, man. I'm glad. First of all, that's some pretty good writing. You know, yeah, absolutely. A, a kid can write. And I was thinking, wow, I would not declare my relationship with Vince to be close at this point. Although it could be, could be, you never say never. Um, but yeah, I knew that the injury to Eddie had something to do with it. So uh, possibly they were going to go with the radicals and, uh, and, and triple H. So maybe the triple H Royal rumble match was supposed to be a one-off triple H and cactus Jack. And that I was hoping to retire at mania, but uh, yeah, now I do really them. Thanks for clearing that up. If you had your druthers thinking back on it, I mean, I know it's easy to look back with hindsight but in your mentality, leaving the rumble in January of 2000, who would have been your dream WrestleMania retirement opponent? 
Would it have been Hunter or would it have been someone else? Yeah, I, I feel so fortunate to have had those two big matches with Hunter. Yeah. Because there's this telling moment beyond the mat where I say, I don't want to be remembered as the guy with the sock. Right. And then after I, I Barry Blaustein shows me the footage, he was concerned that I was going to come across poorly as a father, you know, because I did, in my own defense, by the time I got backstage, the kids had calmed down. I didn't realize that they had been uh, beside themselves and hysterical, you know, even where my son asked me, dad, can I go back out and watch the rumble? And my daughter says, dad, I want to, daddy, I want to wrestle you. And I said, well, we'll wrestle when I get home. Said, I want to wrestle you right now. So I'll bandage up. She wants to wrestle me right now. So they seem fine. And Barry wanted me to see that and remark on it because he liked me. You know, he didn't want me to come across poorly as a father. He thought that would be unfair. And so that's why he showed me that footage. Um, uh, so I did get, but I, and then I said, maybe I will, would rather go out as the guy with the sock. Um, but I did get to go out the way I wanted to go out with two big matches. So I can't say that there would be a dream opponent for me. Okay. Uh, I can't say, I can't say that. And I did end up, uh, you know, catching on against my will, uh, in the WrestleMania main event, you know, uh, people can call me a hypocrite for coming back six weeks after I said I wouldn't prostitute my name by coming back in two months. I think I came back and said, I didn't come back in two months. I came back in six weeks. <laughs> uh, but I'm also the only guy to ever actually try to change the company's mind when they're told they're going to be in a WrestleMania main event. So I tried. You can ask JR when you grill JR. I did try. You know, hey, we got a little. I don't do a good JR. I do a good Vince, good Terry Funk, decent. Her. Yeah, <laughs> Rocky Balboa. I don't do a good uh, JR. But when he called me up, he says, Well, we got a little role for you, WrestleMania. What, I'm going to host a panel and main event? I said, I just retired. And, uh, well, Vince feels really strongly about this. Um, Coming out of Mania, you're gonna you're gonna morph into Cactus Jack for what's gonna become a no holds barred with Randy Orton uh, with Randy Orton at Backlash for the Intercontinental Title. Um, but you wrote in your book Hardcore Diaries that you felt emotionally burnt out after WrestleMania 20, and you just talked about how you looked exhausted in photos. Why would? How do you kick it into gear if you're disappointed in your performance and you are exhausted and you're burnt out emotionally but you know i don't want that to be their last impression i do want to do one more how do you get in the right headspace for that man i think i just felt like i needed to because the build-up was among the best things i'd ever done yes uh storyline i pushed you know i'd fought and you know they tell you this is the hill you're gonna die on when it came to having the loogie hocked on my face and uh, walking out of a match, that's the hill I was willing to die on. And I'd shown that, you know, my intuition was correct. Uh, the fans who forgave me readily, I think inside each of us, there's a, you know, wonderment about wondering of what we would have done in a similar situation. And I don't know how I got back and I got my mojo back. I just know that I did. If I was 285, which may have been, I was 270 by the time I had the match with Randy. And, uh, you know, that next month, I was, 
I think I had a 24 hour gym, a Gold's gym. And uh, man, you know, it was cold. I remember, you know, really cold on Long Island, snow. I would usually go around one or 2 a.m. and pretty much have the place to myself. And I pushed myself, I pushed myself really hard. Again, I wasn't, I knew that this wasn't about how much weight I could lift. It was how, because my offense wasn't dictated on power moves. Cardio anyway. was the game. Cardio was the game. And I really pushed myself, but also that, that uh, apparatus, it's got a name, you know, it's like a bike, but for your arms and you're working everything. Uh, you know, if I throw, if I'd known about water aerobics and, you know, I, I, high intensity. What cardio were you doing with, with bad knees, with yeah. almost arthritic knees? Yeah, they were arthritic, doing? but I could do the recumbent bike. Yeah. Um, and there was, uh, man, I wish I knew the name of it now. Life Fitness had a good one. Uh, it's like an elliptical. Elliptical, elliptical trainer. And going back to uh, 2000 when my wife and I had the Foley's Gym in Navarre, Florida, you know, I could go there after hours, have the place to myself, and I was wearing that thing out to get ready for those matches with Triple H. And so that, yeah, you know, you know, I'm not going to impress anybody in a weight room, but I was going to impress people when I was in that ring. So I did take it really seriously. And uh, I mean, I would be driving down the road. Uh, I, I got pulled over at least once for speeding. And I just looked at the officer. I said, I'm sorry, officer, but I'm cutting, I'm cutting promos in my head. And uh, the guy knew I wasn't lying to, you know, cutting promos in my head. That's a valid reason for speeding you know yes. i'm sorry about it. try to keep speed down these are going to be good good promos officer. Yeah. you know tune in bang bang and away i went yeah I, I mean it felt so real to me and my um 2018 uh nice uh 20 years of hell tour i talk about one of the big challenges for me being was just to take those images that were so real in my mind like you could almost feel like you could reach out and touch him, almost like when you're watching a 3D movie and you can't help but reach out and try to touch that thing that's heading your way. That's the way I felt about the promos in my mind and the images I had that I wanted to bring to life in the ring. Like I can just about reach out and touch these things. And now the challenge is, can you take these images in this match that you have in your mind and bring it to life in the ring? So, boy, you did quite the job with these promos you were cutting in your head because April 5th in Houston, uh, you did a promo that uh, Meltzer said, by the time it was over, I had my first 2004, 2004 award winner decided as this was one incredible promo. This is the promo I did in the rocking chair? This is when we pull out the barbed wire bat. Barbed wire bat. And, and I, think, I think I'm in a rocking chair, and I think in the long haul, the biggest part of this promo is it inspires a young Bray Wyatt mm. who would later tell me that he, he, I remember him telling me, Hey, if you have a chance, this is before we got the WWE, I'm doing this thing. I've got a rocking chair. He alluded to the promo I did with Randy Orton. So if that is the, you know, that's cool, man. Yeah. Um, I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever done. And this is where Vince, talk to me about the wisdom of doing it backstage instead of in the ring because I could focus 100%. You didn't have to wait for beats or pops. 
Uh, you didn't have to get a cadence down. You didn't have to worry about somebody yelling what, you know, which is uh, much as I love Steve. That's, that's an issue. It's an issue. Uh, I don't think I was going to get the what's, but by being able to do that backstage, you know, with the barbed wire bat in the rocking chair, um, alluding to the things I had done in Japan and the lengths I was willing to go, uh, the things I was willing to do to human beings who were respect, respectful and kind that I would have no problem. You know, I was wondering what lengths I might be willing, willing to go to Randy Orton. Meltzer said the exact same thing. This was a pre-tape promo, and it was better that way because it wouldn't have worked as good in front of a live audience. It ended him. It ended with him using the barbed wire bat and going mad while the people filming started freaking. Uh, of course, Flair and Orton are there to sell the reaction as they're watching on the monitor, and it's announced that after Triple H or after beating Triple H two weeks in a row, that Shelton Benjamin is now going to team with you, Benoit, and Michaels to take on Evolution. This is uh, one of those rare moments where it looked like the company had big plans for Shelton Benjamin. Yeah. And he's a guy who's been around and super reliable for a long time, but I think a lot of fans still look and say, man, I could have did so much more with that guy. He but just had that tremendous singles match, right? Yes. Because I remember uh, a production, not production meeting, the talent meeting, John Laurinaitis plays parts of that match to us. And it's just a masterpiece. It really phenomenal. is. A phenomenal match. Um, I do remember, I remember that match and being, uh, my dad had to drive me to the airport because I'd gotten food poisoning. Oh. I think even though I was dropping that weight, I, I gave myself that Easter Sunday uh, cheat day. And... Um, Something didn't bode well for me. So uh, if it had been another time, I wouldn't have even gotten on that plane. I felt really, really bad. Um, and I believe I wrestled that match in black jeans and uh, and like uh, black work boots, which was very unusual for me. Uh, I could go back and see, but I, I had the I didn't want I did not want to have a match on television uh, overruled on that one. I wasn't completely comfortable with the Cactus Jack transition, um, but that promo, um, that pre-tape promo was one of the best things I've ever done. And then after all the glitz and glamour of WrestleMania and The Rock and this unbelievable promo, you wrestle your next match at an independent show. Did? Uh, you're in Northeast Wrestling at Rutgers University. It's Jerry Lawler versus Al Snow. You're in Al's corner. Coach is in Lawler's corner. All right, so I'm not wrestling. Um, it turned into a tag. Oh, it did? There's oh, 11 I wanted to get. Some, I wanted to get some ring time. That's why. I wanted to get some time in the ring. Which is, imagine showing up to an advertise, and I'm not saying this to be ugly. It's advertised Jerry Lawler and Al Snow, and all of a sudden, Mick Foley's in the match? That's a whole new uh, yeah. coat of paint there, as Bruce would say. Um, so the go home raw in Chicago has you in full cactus mode, promising a bloodbath. Uh, Orton's trying to hit you with a chair, but you hit the chair with a barbed wire bat. And of course, Orton powders in the main event, you go 20 minutes in this eight man tag that ends when Michaels pins Orton with a super kick, which I guess maybe doesn't make the most sense in the world since you're going to be in a match with him for the intercontinental title. But that's what happened. Who else was there that we could have beaten? Uh, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but if it's the same setup that we just had. Then it could have been Dave Rick. Uh, 
whole host Talk of folks. about uh, the unfortunate circumstance here. You know, the, uh, the elephant in the room, if you will, there's a now infamous ECW title match that's supposed to happen on this pay-per-view between Johnny Nitro and CM Punk, uh, which Nitro won. And of course that's not the original plan. Chris Benoit was supposed to be here. He doesn't show up. And a lot of folks think that's way out of character for him to miss a show. And apparently like no show, no call. And I think people probably started to assume that there was some sort of an accident or what have you. What do you remember first hearing backstage about, Hey man, where's Chris? It was just that rumbling. We didn't know where he was. And so at that point, yeah, I I had quite a bit of seniority. So when I spoke, people tend to listen. I I remember saying one thing's for sure. If Chris Benoit is not a pay-per-view, something's wrong. Like something major. I was thinking, health problem um that he had some type of health problem but i was he was not the type of guy who would miss a match at all um now the next day after that um talk with mr mcmahon still no still no sign of chris benoit but uh vince understands how i'm I'm offended by that angle and he sends it you know you don't want to be part of it go home so he sent me home and on that night, there was just awful weather throughout the southeast and the southwest. Flights were being canceled and delayed. So I'm sitting in the uh, sitting in the Corpus Christi airport. I'm trying to think. This is 2007. I'm, the internet was around, but I, I, did, I didn't have access to it. I would not have had a tablet or anything like that. I probably just had a flip phone. But I start hearing rumblings. Maybe it's from uh, local news. Uh, that there's been this tragedy and I can't get more information. And because uh, my flight is delayed and I've been rerouted and it's one of those situations where you end up in Atlanta four hours after you're supposed to be there. Atlanta is such an enormous hub that when a weather condition hits like that, everyone's scampering for the hotel rooms. And I end up in bad, even by my standards, you know, dangerous place to be a lot of action going on in the, in the parking lot. Um, like one of these hotels you, you would see in the movie, the Florida project, you know, where people are there for extended times. There's, you know, a variety of improprieties yeah. <laughs> going on before your very eyes. And it's, uh, it's sinking in that this, uh, person I've known and respected, for a long time, Chris Benoit, and even more so, Nancy, who uh, I'd known since 1990. Uh, they're, they're not with us anymore. And I'm devastated. By the next day, they, I think by, it was by the next day, the realization has come that uh, this wasn't a break-in, that this was something more complex. I start getting those phone calls from the different outlets and I, I, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Um, but when I get home, I'd say by the time I got home, I was already down in the sense that, you know, a depression had struck, snuck in that would stick around for a while because I'd always been such a proud not just advocate, but kind of representative of wrestling and always stood up for it. 
And this was something that just devastated us because it asked us to defend the indefensible uh, in the aftermath of uh, the deaths and suicides. I think the only guy who came across well was Chris Jericho because Chris was wise enough to understand that nobody gains from a shouting match. Yeah. And he said he would only be on if he was the only guest. That's the only way you really uh, make your points. Otherwise, uh, I've been on those situations, you know, where you go to like CNN and it's it's you and three professional panelists and they all have to get their stuff in. And you're kind of depending on the person running the show to ask you a question so that you can talk. But other than that, you've got to butt in. And like I said, you're, you're dealing with three people who are doing that as, as a living. Uh, it's really uncomfortable. They had a lot of misinformation out there. Everyone wanted to go with the roid rage thing. I remember Chris Jericho, yeah, Chris, real smart guy. He says uh, he leads off, uh, he reads off a list of effects. And they and uh, it, it, you know jittery and you know uh, uh, <laughs> there's a a bunch of them jittery uptight prone to frustration blah 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 he reads it off and then the uh, woman goes well this just goes to show what the steroids can do and Chris said I just read you the effects of too much caffeine and he had a way of putting things in perspective like you know we all jump out it's a shame that you know news is is uh, it revolves around the ratings. Um, yeah. So it's entertainment. It's not so much news. When I was growing up, the news was a lost leader. It wasn't yeah. there to make money. It was there as a public service. Um, and then you have guys trying to like outdo each other on different networks. So for like that week, it was a free-for-all. And I didn't want any part of it. I didn't want any part of it. I remember I'd been approached by the Bill O'Reilly show. And I was going to do it. And it was actually uh, one of the representatives from uh, uh, Child Fund International who said, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, uh, yeah, I think Bill would treat me well. And he, she said, you've done a lot of good work in the world. I don't think you should trust that this one guy is going to do the right thing for you. Uh, and I went, all right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a valid point. And I, and I didn't talk about it. One thing I you know, I was really, when I say I was struggling, I think a lot of us in the industry were struggling in the aftermath of that tragedy. Uh, our personal appearances were cut down dramatically. Uh, nobody wanted to book a pro wrestler for a period of time. And the few things I did do, I remember going to uh, Six Flags over uh, Texas, and you just feel like every eyeball is upon you, like, oh, you're one of those guys. Looking back, Conrad, after Eddie Guerrero's death, you know, all of us were sad, but Chris was devastated. There's that clip of him, and he's just, he's, he's bawling his eyes out. And so I thought, you know, the writing side of me might try to understand it and write a fictitious, but in a sense, historically, you know, inspired book called letters to Eddie in which you see a human being losing his grip on reality and succumbing to his demons through the through his own words. And I never, I never followed through with that. I think it would have been really interesting, but I have no doubt uh, 
I don't want to say I don't have any doubt, but it would not surprise me. And I, I think it's, I'm almost sure that Eddie's death played so heavily on Chris's mind, having lost his very best friend, uh, that he was never quite the same. Uh, you compound that with the style he had that was relentless. He wasn't one of those guys who changed gears as he got older, uh, learned how to you know make audiences laugh, learned to connect in another way. He never did that. He was just going to give you everything he had every single match. Uh, and and he was you, you, you don't come back after neck surgery and still drop the headbutt off the top rope. You don't do that. Uh, I wish somebody had pulled him aside and said, you got a lot of moves. You got to come up with something different. I don't care if Tommy Billington did it or not. You need to stop coming off the top rope with a surgically repaired neck. But some of these guys, they push themselves so hard. I believe Chris, who was always, you know, small by wrestling standards, uh, continued to use, you know, enhancers even while he was recovering from his neck surgery. So it was uh, sad. It was really sad. He was an intense guy by nature anyway. I think he was greatly affected by the loss of his friend. I do not know what was going on uh, behind the scenes in his marriage. I mean, I've never uh, found out for sure if Daniel had fragile X uh, uh, syndrome. I don't know what the situation was. I just uh, know it was uh, tragic and uh, one of the worst things ever that's ever happened to us, and it really set WWE and wrestling back a ways because it came across so negatively uh, in the uh, in, in the media. And man, the uh, the loss of life for Nancy and her son Daniel just can't be overstated. Um, there's nothing we can say that will, will make that better. But golly, what a senseless tragedy! But I do want to ask, and man, this is this is awkward to bring up, but we didn't know what we know now back then about head trauma, and you know, back in back in my day, people used to say, "Oh, it was bell rung," and and that was it. And and now we've learned and we've gotten better, and I'm thankful for that. But when you're getting, you know, to try to process all of this, and 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 I think a lot of people you know, don't want to hear that maybe CTE was a part of this and, and, and think that that's a cop out or an excuse. And I certainly understand it, but it, CTE did become a topic during this era. And Chris Benoit did become one of those examples. And with what we know about concussions, well, how you've had a bunch of those yeah. start to get into your mind. Like, man, I don't know what happened with Chris, but if we kind of shared the same experience in the ring, that has to be a little scary, right, man? Uh, it is um it is and you know uh we're talking about uh doing this benefit for um steve mongo mcmichael yes sir uh in the beginning of september and uh, you asked me like how quickly was i on that like immediate affirmative I'll, I'll be i'll be there I, you know i don't care if i spend an extra in chicago i mean i given i was a huge bears fan uh, from the time, uh, 1969, I had a Dick Buckus poster hanging over my bed and he finally signed it like 20, 20, 25 years later, which is a good story for another time. But I love the bears. I remember when Deborah was my assistant, uh, I told her, I said, yeah, I was a big bears fan. I said, I bet you I could still rattle off, uh, 10 names 
from the 86 Super Bowl team. And she went, really? And I went, boom, 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 and had them all. And so here's Mongo, who was just this, not just larger than life and that he was a 275-pound monster of a man, but lived life with a real gleam in his eye. And he's, he looks like he's down below 100 pounds. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. You can still see the light in his eye. Uh, and you can't prove that it was the concussions, but there's definitely a link between uh, football and pro wrestling and early onset uh, ALS. Uh, Conrad, I went as a guest to Chris Nowinski's to the uh, uh, gala for the Boston Center for Traumatic Encephalopathy. I think it's called Concussion Legacy Institute now, but I figure as long as I can continue to say Boston Institute for Traumatic Encephalopathy, I'll be okay. Yep. But there was a running back who was in a wheelchair with early onset ALS, and he said it's the same thing that you did. He said, back in my day, they said, ah, oh, you got your bell wrong. Yeah. Uh, you, got a, you got a dinger. And he said, if instead of being told I had my bell wrong or I got a dinger, if my coach had looked me in the eye and said – you have just suffered a traumatic brain injury. He said, I might not be in this chair. Wow. Uh, because we really downplayed yeah. head injuries. Uh, guys who did not wrestle with head injuries were looked down upon. Um, you know, we had the benefit, like uh, when I had a concussion, I could say, hey, listen, man, don't hit me in the head today. Let's go after my knee. That's that's something we could do. But really what we should have been doing is taking 10 days off or eight days yeah. off. But you just did not do that at the time. We've we learned so much, right? Like uh, going, going back to the cell match, uh, I'll say during my shows, hey, hey, you know, we've learned a lot. <laughs> and if the same situation presented itself in 2022, that match would be stopped. Yes. And I'd say, luckily for me, in a weird way, it wasn't because had that cell match been stopped, it would have trended. Now, let's just say this was a new match. It would have trended for two days and then been forgotten. Yeah. And instead, because of the actions of the survivors, meaning me and The Undertaker and Terry Funk as well, it was like a snowball going downhill, gathering momentum. But the line I use, and you've been at the show when I use this one, it's like, we didn't stop matches. We bought time. Yeah. And I'm proud of that, but it's also like living in the dark ages. You know, like, you know, we, we don't buy time these days. You know, we stop matches and we don't worry about the match that day. We worry about the next, you know, 30, 40 years of that participant's uh, life. So we have learned a lot. Uh, I know that uh, the CTE diagnosis has been really helpful to Chris's dad. Uh, I have to feel like something went wrong in there because he was such a humble, nice guy, very intense, very difficult on himself. But, uh, you know, I don't remember many people having a crossword with Chris. You know, he was very highly thought of. I, I could not call him a good friend. Because he was one of the guys that I went, hey, Chris, how you doing? Family good. And you think, you know, like <clears throat> you go through that same routine and you realize that other than the two times we traveled, like we never really had a big conversation. But it was always pleasant. And especially when uh, Nancy was there with his kid, uh, with his boy, Daniel, 
I'd gather around and spend a little extra time because Nancy and I, you know, had the, the friendship going back to 1990, 89, actually, when I joined WCW. Um, so I, I'm still skeptical as to whether anybody, no matter their brain condition, uh, would have it in them to pick up a gun and kill someone they love. Like, I don't know. That's a step beyond. I say it probably would not have happened had he not had the brain injuries, but I don't think you can blame it on the brain injuries alone. If that makes yeah, sense. I don't think we need to give him a pass. I would like to talk about Nancy Sullivan. Any, any fun or interesting Nancy Sullivan stories you can share with us. I don't think we celebrate her nearly enough. No, no, we don't. And I wrote an article about her a couple of years ago. You know, everyone, every, I don't do it nearly as frequently as I used to. Uh, but every once in a while I'll sit down and I'll write an article that takes three or four hours. And those are the articles I'm proudest of. They're not the articles that get the widest readership because if you want people to react to stuff you put up, you put up a funny meme or you put up a photo with a one sentence uh, description. But sometimes I like to take the deep dive. And I did that with Nancy. And I brought up the fact that when I met her, she was woman, uh, Kevin Sullivan's wife. And uh, she was managing uh, Doom. Ron Simmons and, and Butch Reed. And she was much higher on the card than I was. I was Kevin's project, you know, Sullivan Slaughterhouse. But I'll tell you what, Conrad, I've been around a long time. I know when I'm being <laughs> blown off. I know when someone's not interested in talking to me at the least. And I never got that from Nancy. Actually, I got the antithesis. She was always all smiles. Like I remember her writing like in a notebook, almost like she was a middle schooler, like Nancy loves Kevin. Like they were a really happy couple together. It's crazy. They suffered that wrestling. <laughs> it was, what is it? They worked themselves into a shoot. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. You don't ever just, I think if, if a booker approaches you about having a, uh, you know, a real life, uh, you know, an angle with your real life spouse, just go, I've seen the, the, I've seen the documentation on this. I'm, I'm not going to fall into that trap. Uh, but after, um, uh, she left, uh, WCW, she was a regular in ECW and she was great there. I worked with her a lot because she was Sandman second and I had the, uh, had the uh, feud with Sandman. And I think people forget just how hot, when I say hot, I'm talking about the crowds in Florida. Yeah. These are people who believed. And if they didn't believe in all of it, they believed in Kevin Sullivan, that he was the devil incarnate. So when this woman comes off and joins forces, like you're putting your life on the line in some of those small Florida towns. And they welcomed that type of heat. So I think when you put together the work she did as fallen angel in Florida, the work she did as uh, a woman with the incredible transformation, this is going back to like 88 uh, where Rick Steiner was on his first date with this cute you know, girl with the pigtails and the horn rim glasses. And then before his eyes, she transforms into woman. It was really great TV. Uh, I think when you put all those things together, the three different runs she's had, that uh, she's really deserving 
of more recognition and maybe a, uh, you know, the, all, the Holy Grail is the WWE Hall of Fame. Um, I don't, I, I think eventually it's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, though. Just because of the optics of, you know, the, the negative connotation it would it would bring about with him? I, I, yeah, I think on the heels of uh, China's induction, I, I'm overjoyed that Joni was inducted, but I don't think you want consecutive, and that may have been two years ago, I may not may be mixing up my uh, years. I'm not sure if you want consecutive or even... Um, tragedies. Uh, tragedies. Uh, female tragedies. I think you want to give those a few years. You know, when you're, it's tough when you deduct when you induct someone posthumously, uh, and the, and the deaths are not by natural causes. I think you got to space them out a little bit. Listen, it's a it's an awkward conversation to have, but I hope people will take a little time today and go celebrate some Nancy stuff. You know, we're talking yeah. about stuff. Go watch some of her stuff in ECW and WCW and really, really fun stuff with her. And as silly as it sounds, try to talk about wrestling a little bit now, but in the back <laughs> of your mind, there is this, Hey, what's going on with Chris thing. And then it all changes the next day. Of course, originally it was hyped as a federal investigation to continue the Vince McMahon death storyline. But once we understand that the Benoit family is no longer with us, the whole show changed into a yeah. Chris Benoit memorial show instead. And just to remind everybody, we didn't know the circumstances at the time. Right. WWE wishes they had that one back. But sure. as the legend goes, at some point during the show, people started to suspect, wait, maybe there was more to it than this. Uh, and, and listen, we've beat that up. Uh, I don't think we necessarily have to talk about it anymore, but it's uh, it's a, it's something that no one will really be able to discuss in a, in a, in a proper way, I think for Nancy and Daniel, um, right. I know wrestling fans really just gravitate to talking about Benoit and I understand that, but Hey, woman did her thing too. And, and Daniel was a kid and I don't know, man, there's no way to sort of put a bow on this. I'm just rambling at this point. Yeah. I had a situation, uh, when I was in Bloomington, Indiana, my birthplace, and they've got a great club there called the comedy attic. And there was a guy sitting front row to the left of the stage wearing a shirt that says, I'm a Chris Benoit guy. And I said, oh, man, I know it's a free country. You should be able to wear what you want. But I think there's a point. And the point to me is now I can't look at that side of the yeah. crowd. So after a while, after about 10 minutes, I go, all right, listen, I got to address something going on. I said, you know, people can wear what they want. I said, but when you're wearing an I'm a Chris Benoit guy shirt, you have to realize he murdered a friend of mine. Now I can't look at this section of the crowd, which hurts the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to go to the back so I don't have to see you. And therefore, I can give these people the show they deserve. And the thing is, he went back. He wasn't mad at me. He was in tears uh, because he couldn't understand why that would upset anybody. And he did not want to make me angry. He wasn't doing it to be a wise ass. And you know, I'm generally pretty good given that I am an autism dad and I have a son on the spectrum, although he's doing phenomenal. Oh, my God. Maybe uh, we'll have him come in and play some guitar on a future show because the gains this guy has made. Uh, it's, it's really inspiring. Uh, but I'm really good at picking out people who need a little extra time. And this may have been one of them. 
So he didn't just bail out and say, screw you. He stuck around for the meet and greet. He did and he didn't yell at me. He was he had tears in his eyes. And I said, Yeah, it's I can't remember. I said, so you have to understand, and I laid it out to him, you know, that if you're wearing something that distracts and puts me in a situation where I can no longer look at a third of the audience, that hurts the show. And that's why I had to put you back there. And he understood. And I said, you know, you know, I brought up the part about the, the murder. And then, so to this day, it's unfortunate. Yeah, over the past few days in Australia, I signed the Backlash uh, DVD, which actually has Chris on the cover. He had a great match. He always had great matches. Um, but man, ah, wow. Just a really, really, really tragic situation that set our business back for a while because nobody wanted to do business with pro wrestlers for quite a while. Football is back in full swing with another week of epic games. And who's got you covered on the action for every single one of them? DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And new customers can bet $5 on football and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Nobody's missing out on the action this season. All DraftKings customers can take advantage of two new offers every game day this September. Get in on NFL Week 2 action with DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the app now and use the code FOLEY to sign up. New customers can bet just $5 and take home 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook. With the code FOLEY, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for gambling problems by calling 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in ONT, see sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility terms and responsible gaming resources. Bonus bets expire seven days after issuance. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. She eventually gets phased out of wrestling the men and really just gets put with the ladies. Uh, she's in the women's division. Why do you think that is? Was there just pushback from the guys? Is that coming down from the office? I don't know. That would be something. Probably be like a something for grilling Jr. or something to talk about with Bruce Beast. I did not know, but it was clear that once, if they felt like that was all she could do. Then maybe the thing to do would have been to like send her on a goodwill tour, let her cash in on a lot of the, you know, the opportunities were coming uh, at a rapid pace, and bring her back when they did have something really good. I don't know. That's just uh, you know Monday morning quarterbacking, but it was clear that that was a. It's a demotion. It, it was a demotion because the women's division then. Well, it's not what it is now. It's not what it is now. And it was essentially in the the death spot. It's the popcorn match. And it's not hanging out with The Undertaker or Stone Cold or The Rock or whatever she had been yeah, doing yeah. up to this point. Uh, after the Royal Rumble 2001, she does a handspring back elbow. And the story is she hurt her neck. Jerry Lawler rushes over from commentary like when Owen fell. And the whole thing was treated as a very serious injury. But, of course, it's bought by no one. Uh, eventually, she returns. She squashes Ivory at WrestleMania 17. She becomes the women's champion. But she's only with the company for seven more weeks. 
uh, even defeating Lita at Judgment Day. But then she never returns to WWF TV again. And I realized that by this point, you're starting to wind it down. We know you're never officially done with WWE. Um, this is what, what, what month and year is this? So 2001 is when WrestleMania 17 right. happens. And just seven weeks later, she's gone. So we'll call it June mm-hmm. of, of 2001. This is when the company is up till WrestleMania 17 hotter than ever. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's famously where Stone Cold turns heel. And you start to see the business fall a little bit in April, falls a little bit more in May, falls a little bit more in June. Fans weren't ready, and they didn't want to see a heel Stone Cold. They wanted to cheer Stone Cold. But at the same time, she probably feels like, wait a minute, I, I was working with Eddie Guerrero and Chris Jericho, and now no offense, but I'm working with Ivory. It's not quite the same. And she had run into a brick wall contractually, right? She, uh, according to JR, felt like she needed to be at that million-dollar level. And... Uh, JR would say once upon a time, the, the biggest downside guarantee that you could get in WWE was a million dollars. Whether you were Stone Cold or The Rock or The Undertaker or Triple H, that was the number. She saw herself in that light, and the WWE did not. So they got to an impasse based on that. Uh, you were friendly with Joni. Is that the version of the story you heard? I don't know if I heard this story directly from her. I was going through my own issues at the time uh, that we talked about during the commissioner uh, episode. Um, Man, you know, Joni would have made over a million dollars. You know, when I ended up signing, Steve and I signed at just about the same time in 97. Uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but she would have made over a million dollars had she continued to be programmed with Eddie and Jericho. Yeah. And no offense, but if she's working with Ivory in, and now just in the women's division, yeah. would she? Well, you know, the, the booking formula was, there's no textbook. A lot of it was a gut feeling. Yes. And I remember, you know, I would call up Jim. Jim's still a dear friend. How he went through so many years as a director of talent relations. I'll never know. Held everybody's respect. That's a real testament to Jim. But a lot of it was, it's what they felt was earned. And I remember, you know, Jim, uh, the payoff's a little light. He goes, oh, yeah, Mick, sorry, but uh, you weren't in that main event. I said, Jim, these shows are selling out before we even put a card up. It's the company and the people that are seen as the major players who are selling those tickets. Of which you are one. And I am one of those guys. So whether you choose to put me lower on the card in front of a a crowd that's been sold out for months, that's up to you. But I'm telling you, I think I deserve more. But I think that's a really valid point. I think Joni was worth the million dollars. I do too. I do too. And then here, like when I do my, when I do my, one-man shows, right? And we talked in private about how I'm not chasing the biggest guarantee I can get because then you get 20 shows all around the globe and Mm -hmm. you're traveling 10 hours each show. But I do need to get a decent guarantee because a decent guarantee shows me that that venue has an interest in the show doing well. If you just say, I'll take whatever I bring in, that's nice and it's noble and there's part of me that likes that, but it puts zero pressure on that club to let people know you're coming in there because they have nothing to lose. WWE, if they'd offered the million-dollar contract, would have to put her in a good mm-hmm. spot Yes, because that's how they would make their money back. But I have no doubt that if they had used her well, 
that she was worth that million dollars. And she was, to me, a goldmine for bringing the company into the mainstream, which was really important. And there really were not that many mainstream stars. Less than 10, I would say. Mm -hmm. And Joni was one of them. Yes. And I think, you know, bigger picture, if calmer heads could have prevailed, um, I don't know. It's just, it's tragic that they could not reach a, that they could not reach an agreement. And I think that uh, the, the the Cliff's notes is that once uh, Hunter and uh, Stephanie were together, that Joni's career was over. But we've just gone through the months and years. That was not years. the case. That's not the case. And uh, But yeah. a lot of people would believe that she believed. And these are fans, so they don't really know Joni Lauer. You did. Do you think she believed that she didn't get that offer? Maybe not because Hunter didn't want her to have it or Stephanie didn't want her to have it, but maybe Vince was trying to protect his daughter? Because Vince no. is in a tough spot, and I don't think enough people really talk about that. And you've been very plain, even on this program in, in more recent weeks, saying, hey, Vince doesn't care if you disagree with him politically. Yeah. Uh, he may not like you. You guys might not be friends and want to go have a beer, but he's going to do what's best for business. Yeah. But in this particular case, it might feel like one of the first and only times that it's not just maybe his feelings that he has to consider, because lots of talent would leave and say, oh, Vince is this and Vince is that. And then they come back. But now he's got to think about his daughter. And, and as a father, man, that's a tough spot because – what I know about you more than anything else, just from doing this show, is you're going to do what you can to protect and take care of your kids. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that might not be popular for everybody else, but that's not as important as you taking care of your kids. Mm -hmm. And so I could totally buy into, even if we could push her and maybe get a return, at what cost personally for my family? I, I think it was dollars and cents. Okay. And keep in mind, there's no more WCW. Right. Or ECW. There's, talk about that would have been a giant jump and a huge acquisition for WCW. She had no leverage. Is what right. You're she to. had no leverage. She ended up going to Japan. I, I heard Jim on the, uh, uh, I mean, this is one of the shows that's out there. It's the DX. Um, uh, it's the A&E show. The A&E show. He said a million dollars. She wanted what Stone Cold was getting, and that's not going to happen. So as big as Joni was, there's only one Stone Cold. Well, in fairness, that was his downside. Stone Cold made a whole hell of a lot yeah. more than a million dollars. And yes, it was. So I'm saying I'm with you. I think they should. She should have gotten it. Yeah. The company was public. They're making a, a, a lot of money. Not as much as they would once they uh, started attracting more sponsors with right. uh, more family-friendly product. Uh, and expanding overseas and doing all the different things it took to stay alive, uh, you know, uh, going head to head with the UFC and surviving through the pandemic and even flourishing. They've done made a lot of right moves. But now we're talking about a company that's worth well over a billion dollars. Uh, I think Joni would have been a good investment, uh, but she did not really have a backup plan. And I think as much as leaving WWE hurt her financially, leaving that atmosphere 
Might not have been the worst thing. With the, well, with the support, I'm talking about the support system. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <coughs> that that was probably long-term even more devastating. Hey, Mick. Uh, Hello. You and Bret Hart kind of briefly crossed paths uh, in the WWF. I know you had a match on Shotgun Saturday night. Um, if things hadn't gone down the way they did uh, for Bret, how do you think he would have fit into the Attitude Era, and do you think you and him would have would have crossed paths, you know, a lot more. Oh, I, I would like to think so. Uh, Brett's a really good friend. Um, and he and I bonded instantly because we were both Civil War enthusiasts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Not many, too many people do that. So Brett gave me, like, a, a historical novel that was a pretty big gift to receive from Brett Hitman Hart. First couple weeks in the territory. And the other thing we had was that Al Snow was making fun of me for listening to Leonard Cohen in the car on the way to Vancouver for the match I had July 96 with uh, Henry O. Godwin. And Brett heard that someone was uh, criticizing me for my Leonard Cohen uh, fandom. And Brett came in with a notebook, opened it up, and quoted a Leonard Cohen song. Al Snow never badmouthed Leonard Cohen again. It was like a hush came over the room. It was like, oh, I get it. We don't badmouth Leonard Cohen in this dressing room. Uh, so Brett and I, we had the shotgun Saturday night match. I remember saying to Brett, this is kind of like it's supposed to be an edgy or you know, show. Uh, I use the term raw because raw originally was supposed to name that because it was supposed to have that edgy feel. And I said, Brett, I don't think we should discuss anything. I think we should just go out there, and if we make mistakes, we make mistakes. And it, I think we had a good match. We had a good match, and then I, I had another singles match with Brett in either Birmingham or um, I think it was Birmingham, UK, one of the best house show matches I've ever had. But I think the only time we wrestled on TV was as part of the, uh, uh, when he was uh, the Canadian, uh, the faction, uh, the Hart Foundation turned heel. So... I would have loved to have worked with Brett Moore. I think they would have been really good matches. And you have to believe that someone as great as Brett would have found a way to stay relevant in the Attitude Era. Because he was certainly, uh, everything he did uh, was, was, was the best it could be. So I have no doubt Brett would have been a major force if he had stayed in WWE. Were you surprised when Cornette left WCW and started his own promotion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy's always had a particular idea of the wrestling. And the way it should be presented. The way it should be presented. And I think, uh, look, that's one, of the be that's one of the beautiful things to me about the product today is if there's something you don't like, there are alternatives out Plenty. there. And not just one alternative, but uh, you can find what you like. And so I said, for example, you know, I used to love the All Japan style. I thought that was where I would find a home. Didn't knew I wasn't a WWE guy, especially after I left WCW the first time. Didn't think I'd be back in 15 months with a much bigger push. I was watching up to 12 hours of All Japan wrestling a day. I liked that strong style stuff before it was termed strong style. Believe it or not, I liked the understated interviews, even though I became I'd say very good at uh, you know the the the, the hyped-up interviews. Love those, but at the time, I liked wrestling as sport the way it was portrayed by All Japan, and thought that would be where I might fit in. But Corny had this idea based on the wrestling he grew up with, 
and uh, had had some money behind him. And uh, Rick Rubin was always rumored to be his. Have you, have you met Rick? Rubin? I did. I met him a couple times and had a good talk with him about the the Hurt video for uh, the Johnny Cash did. So it was kind of cool to ask him, like, did you know? Did you know how powerful this was going to be? And he said, not until we did the video. Uh, so it's kind of cool to get that kind of feedback from somebody who's been right there in the middle of some of the biggest uh, records. He listens to our podcast. He does, he really? How crazy is Rick, that? how are you doing, man? Beard game strong, full Yeti for that beard. Yeah. Well, we need to get him a bottle. Let's get him a bottle. Yeah. yeah. Great guy. Yeah. And he's one of those guys who is such a influential person in pop culture and not just American pop culture or history, but just the world. Yeah. And to know that, man, he loves this stuff as much as we do. It's just Isn't crazy. That crazy? He, he goes to bed every night watching old wrestling. How fun is that? So it's like wrestling is to him what the old Christmas shows are to me. Yeah. Finds comfort in them. And he's halfway to a Santa beard right now. He's got, he's all the way there. He could yeah. be a heck of a Santa if he wanted to be. Uh, so let's talk about Smoky Mountain. That's going to be, you know, where Cornette lands and starts his own promotion with the help of Rick Rubin. Are you keeping up with what's going on through the trades or just through the locker room? Or how do you first hear about Smoky I Mountain? I do. I read about it. I was think I was subscribing to both the uh, uh, Observer and the Torch at the time. So I'm keeping up uh, with it through there. It sound, and, Brian, and through my friendship with Brian Hildebrand. So Brian and I, back in the days when we used to talk, you know, we people used to talk on the phone. Well, we were probably talking on the phone once a week or so, and Brian was super happy there. He was Jimmy's right-hand man. You weren't in regular communication with Corny, just no. Brian. No, yeah. Brian was the one I was in regular contact with, and Brian loved it, and he would tell me about some of the super hot crowds they had. Uh, you know, that things were on... Uh, whether they turn into riots or just threatened to have uh, the... You know, the uh, potential riot, some of these crowds at these old school towns, Johnson City and some of the Kentucky towns, people took that stuff really seriously. I loved them, some Rock and Roll Express, who were just so good at getting that sympathy with the crowd. And uh, they had you know, they had a, had a good crew of people there. Really? Uh, you know, make sure we talk about Jimmy's Jimmy's feud with Bullet and me being there at Knoxville Civic Center to see the payoff and what I learned from watching let's, Two let's Masters at Work. Yeah, it's so it's so let's let's uh, explain first. Okay. Because we're speaking we're talking about regional guys. A lot of your mankind era fans maybe don't even know what we're talking about, but Bullet Bob Armstrong was one of the biggest drawing stars of the Southeast. If you're in Alabama or Georgia or Florida or Tennessee, man, if you went to wrestling in Montgomery or Pensacola or anywhere like that, you knew all about Bullet Bob Armstrong. Yes. And he goes on to have one of the most legendary wrestling families of all time. Mm -hmm. His son Steve was a phenomenal tag team partner to Tracy Smothers. They had a run in WCW, one of the best matches ever against the Midnight Express. Of course, we know what happened with Road Dog. That worked out. He made millions of dollars as mm -hmm. part of DX and is still in a big way involved. And of course, Scott Armstrong, one of the best referees that WWE had and still actively producing and doing his thing. And who could forget Brad Armstrong? Wow. Maybe one of the best wrestlers that ever lived and never maybe quite got his due. Uh, but just an incredible wrestling family that I don't think enough people talk about. No. And, and he had one heck of a feud as a relatively older man 
Uh, but man, he came out and cut some really strong promos for Smoky Mountain and had some of their biggest and most memorable. He was a great feeds. promo guy, and I got to see Bullet in action on Independent. Even when I was working with Continental, they let us do a couple indies, and he took a guy who only had a handful of matches, and it was almost like watching a magician at work. Like this guy came back, he was the Panther. I'd never heard of him. I'd heard him before. Never heard of him since. It was almost like he was in shock at what he'd just been a part of which was the best match he had ever had or ever will have, because Bob made him look like a million bucks and therefore made himself look even better by beating someone he'd made to look like a million bucks. The old uh, flair analogy, if he could have a great match with a broomstick. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could, I mean, some of these younger guys who were maybe less than all that experience, Bullet could work around them. He could. And make it look like they were doing right. a bunch of stuff and it was really all Bullet. So when Bullet passed away, I, you know, Usually, the, um, when Twitter was 140 characters, by that time, I think it was up to 280. That usually suffices for paying tribute. That's the given. And there are times when I really want people to know. I want them to feel the work that went into an article. So a good article will take between two and five hours to write. And so for, when, I, when I wanted to do an article about Lex Luger, re-examining Lex Luger, I thought, I can just do two minutes, you know, on my tablet and it will get seen by more people, but I want people to feel the work. I don't want it to see, be seen as two minute time investment. I want it to be a four or five hour time investment. So the Luger article was written for the audience at large, whereas the Bullet article was really written for Bullet's kids. Those are the, that was the audience, the audience of, you know, four people that I really wanted to see that because I wanted them to know how much respect I had for Bob. So they, I'm coming in for like a handful of TV tapings and uh, the payoff shows in Knoxville. So I'm leaving my house Thanksgiving afternoon, Christmas afternoon. There were three, four years in a row where I had to leave and work on Christmas day when I was with WCW and later with Smoky Mountain. The Kiss My, Kiss My Feet match is so, it's old school. Yes. The winner, uh, the loser has to kiss the winner's feet. And what I learned, Corny loses, and, and he's got to kiss Bob's feet. And they get every inch out of it that you possibly can. It's, uh, it's just not the consummation, it's the foreplay that goes into the kissing. There you go. And you could not have asked for a better reaction and just you think, Whoa, it's up here. And then Bob gets the microphone. Just when you think every possible pop has been drained from that audience, he goes, the stipulation says, kiss my feet. I've got two feet. And then they get to build that same pop all over again. And I thought, there's no bumps. There's no pain. And listen to this crowd. And listen to this crowd. It's like that's why it's not that's not for everyone. Right. Someone else could look at that and say that's not wrestling, and and it, it, that's why I love the adage. And I think I think on a certain level, Jimmy knows that wrestling is whatever you want it to be. Yes. And it was whatever he wanted it to be, and he was one of the best at it. And there's other things out there that in his mind aren't wrestling, but I'd argue there were some people that would see. Uh, a man and his Christmas creature. <laughs> yeah, there's a few other ideas that maybe aren't the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but uh, you know, this is how old was Corny at that time? He's about my age, so he was in his 
30s, kissing the feet of a man in his mid-50s probably at that time. And if somebody is appalled by it, they have the right to be appalled by it. But for the six or 7,000 people, and I believe it was a heck of a house, brother, uh, you bring Foley in, things start happening. <laughs> no, I was part of that, but it was, it was incredible to see that and to absorb it. And I tell younger talent, one of the biggest challenges they face is, to, I said, absorb everything and then try to filter out what works for you, what doesn't, but never forget anything because you don't know when you might be able to call on what you've learned That's and apply exactly it to yourself. Right. Well said. Man, oh man, do I love talking about this. We're getting a little older and man, those next days after we hung out and maybe partied the night before, it's a little tough, right? I'm 42 years old. I can tell a difference. That was until I found Z-Biotics. Let me explain. I used to enjoy a cocktail during the week, but I found that I was not productive at all the next day. Felt like butt. Well, the way around that is to get ahead of it with Z-Biotics. Let me explain. Z-Biotics is a pre-alcohol probiotic. That's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle those rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. And it's that byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your next day, right? We've all felt rough the next day and we thought, well, I'll just drink water, I'll feel better. No, that's not it. You see, Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break down that toxic byproduct. It breaks it down. You see, it's designed to work like a liver, but in your gut, where you need it most. Drink Zbiotics before drinking, drink responsibly, and enjoy the night with confidence. And I have to admit, I was skeptical when I first heard about this, and then I tried it with Eric Bischoff before I knew we were going to be uh, <clears throat> enjoying ourselves. And buddy, I felt fine the next day. We were productive. We were up and at them early. We were making sales. We were closing those deals. I think Zbiotics for that. I'm telling you, it makes a difference every time I use it. I've never turned someone on to it where they didn't notice the difference. I think you will too. And let me mention this. Labor Day is right around the corner. Stock up on this. Share it with your family and friends. They're going to thank you for it. Especially if you're really hanging out on a Monday. You know what I'm talking about. Well, now we got to go to work on Tuesday. Dude. Go be a hero on Tuesday and have fun like you want to on Monday. Savor the moment. Let Zbiotics do the rest. Go to zbiotics.com slash Foley and get 15% off your first order when you use Foley at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash Foley and use the code Foley at checkout for 15% off. And we thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring today's episode. When you signed your deal with the WWF in late 95 or whatever, that you would have ever been portraying a comedy figure? <laughs> because it's so opposite Cactus Jack. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's hard to imagine that one day you'd make sock puppets. Cactus Jack, there was a little humor. Some of the promos Cactus there Jack There was some were, inside, yeah. you know, yeah. innuendo. Uh, even the, the birthday, uh, you know, the birthday party for Abdullah the Butcher. Yes. It was me and Abdullah having a birthday party for Sting. And uh, Paul Heyman gave me the key line in here, which is, and then also I, I had been under, you know, Paul's, uh, Paul was there. He was this pre-ECW, this is 91. Um, but we go out there with a birthday cake and I'm going to sing happy birthday to you. And it was, you know, the cactus, 91 cactus. Jack. I think I would argue 
91, I don't know, he had a good, but 91 coming in strong there, or 95 ECW uh, slash IW Japan. They were the best versions of Cactus Jack. Um, 91, you know, happy. And I've got Abdullah, he's eating a cake. Uh, I believe he's eating it without utensils. You need of course. Abdullah. Happy birthday to you. It sounds a little mankindish, but Cactus was a little mankind. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Stinger. Happy birthday to you. So it's kind of a comedic setting, singing happy birthday. Abdul is eating a cake, and Jim Ross goes, that's really nice, Cactus, but it's not Sting's birthday. And when I know that. Don't you think I know that? I know it. It's, 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 I said, it's, but I miss Sting's last birthday. So it's very important that we celebrate Sting's last birthday now because Sting's last birthday was Sting's last birthday and so now we've made people laugh we've cut them off and we've somehow come across as being more diabolical and maniacal while singing a birthday song and eating a birthday cake freaking awesome which is what i loved about that type of thing but you're right i did not see i didn't nobody saw the comedic uh, well, especially mankind he's, yeah he's he's in a dungeon he's got a rat on him not the good kind and, and <laughs> it, it, it it's uh it just feels like there's no way this would ever have a comedic streak. It's right. so dark. Yeah. And, well, anyway, here it comes. I, I wanted to ask, though, because the reason we brought up the, the style of match, I know, you know, that you've already got the deal and they know what you're doing and they're invested. But bef I think before you have the match is when Cornette tells you Vince didn't like the promos. Yeah. This has to be in your head now. Here I am with no sleep, with a gimmick I don't love, that I'm trying to make the best of. I'm trying my best to make chicken salad. I've just let a rat crawl all over me and poured my heart into it. They're telling me it's not good. And now go wrestle yeah. in a different size ring with different ropes and, and, and a different canvas. And uh, this has to be a very stressful day, not very enjoyable. It is a stressful day. And I think I have uh, foregone, uh, I've seen the Whataburger in Corpus Christi, and it's not in my best interest to eat this. So that shows you my level of dedication to that show. I did find out uh, Vince wasn't a big fan, did not have the sleep. Uh, and again, I, I had to convince myself on the plane that I belonged there. Uh, but now I'm as a different character, and everybody in that dressing room has seen people come and go. So I came in. Uh, right after Santa Claus had left. Yep. Uh, so, so this is where they were on that map, you know, with the Aldo Montoya's and Santa Claus, the evil Santa, uh, which I would disagree on, just based on principle. Yeah, you don't have an evil Santa character. Don't don't do that to your yeah. friends. Um, and I wasn't sure what the future held for me, and I did come out. You know, I mean, there was enough encouragement where I thought it went well. I was trying out a few different moves in there, but things I thought would work with the character. But for the life of me, I still didn't see why I wasn't Cactus Jack. Was Pat there? Did he give you feedback? I don't remember Pat giving me feedback. What about Vince? At what that did he time, think? I don't don't recall. Okay. I wish I could tell you. So you did wind up working uh, in Memphis for a short time against Jerry Lawler before you know that WrestleMania. Yeah. I'm just curious, how does that come about? Do you think I need to work in the lifts more? I want to work on the gimmick more? Or is this a WWE idea? Go this is WWE had a talent sharing agreement. Yeah. And uh, by and large, Jerry was getting people who either hadn't, <laughs> who had had their run, 
Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember Brian Christopher going out and cutting a promo about the guy he was bringing in next week, and oh, he's a big guy, and he's got a he's got a dental chair. So they were bringing in Isaac Yankum, mm-hmm. right? And this, is, so he, they're not getting the best that WWE has to offer, but they're also getting people who are working on new stuff. So and, and green guys like The Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they were yeah, yeah guys. Yeah, this is a, yeah. They were getting Kurt their Angle. experience yeah. there. I was coming in just to get some working experience, and Lawler sold it like I, he was in a fight for his life, which was great. The net, and then that night you'd work Saturday morning TV in Memphis. Then you go to the Nashville Fairgrounds to work Did your. You pick uh, anything up from Lawler. Lawler is such a master of the craft. Uh, well, underappreciated. He, oh yeah, sells everything so well. So you're not necessarily having to do as much. And it was a short match, maybe seven eight minutes. So I wasn't going to be up there with the best stuff that Lawler's ever done. But I think the line I used of all the things I've lost, I think I missed my mind the most, which may have been a corny line. Corny may have given that to me. And it was that then that night I'm working as a babyface with Brian Christopher as my partner. And I can't remember who we're working with. But as we're going, uh, now uh, Brian's looking for the tag and I start, you know, getting caught up in what else is going on. And now the crowd's starting to plead with me to come in there. And now instead of it being uh, a mistake I'm making because of the absence of mind, now I'm consciously choosing not to be there. So I'm finding ways for this character. I'm seeing potential for this character to work based on the fact that he can be further out there than Cactus ever was. Uh, and I, and it's not running through my mind that I have to find nuances to work with the bigger, because it's going to be a character that does a lot of yelling, and then he's going to come down in decibel. He's almost going to whisper. Um, but it was still very much a work in progress, you know, when I got in there to do my first, not only my first match with The Undertaker, but even uh, a couple months in when I do my first pay-per-view still a work in progress and i can't tell you how indebted i am to him for uh you know believing in me to that point where he thought a loss at our first pay-per-view match was going to do more for him in the long run uh than winning that match would be and it was you know i think my record against undertaker was maybe two and 98 i'm guessing we had about 100 yeah. matches i know i only won two of them but they were the ones that counted it was that that uh, June in my first pay-per-view match, and then it was uh, the uh, Boiler Room Brawl. SummerSlam, SummerSlam yeah. in August, yeah. We had a blast at StarCast 6. A huge thank you to everyone who attended. And if you want to relive our stage show experience, you can with Premier Streaming Network. Over 20 stage shows took place StarCast weekend. From comedy shows, design panels, musical performances, talk shows, and more, including a live edition of AEW Unrestricted with CEO Tony Khan. Sign up for Premier Streaming Network today and check out the shows available now on demand and in HD. And if you sign up today, you'll get two months free of Premier Plus. Enjoy the amazing lineup of content that Premier Streaming Network offers, including all five previous StarCast stage show lineups. Hundreds of hours of fantastic wrestling content at your fingertips. Visit StarCastOnPremiere.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what AdFreeShows.com is all about. 
Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple Podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-free shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and The Insiders. Plus new series like The Book with David Crockett, Monday Mailbags with Mike Kyoto and Nick Patrick, and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early? You can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus, ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch-alongs, Q&As, and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered. That adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today, and hey, when you do, the first week is completely free. Adfreeshows.com. <laughs> 